Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we come before you. This is a, you know, it's a day that, that, that uh, comes with a lot of mixed emotions for me personally. We, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's joyous things. My sister-in-law, it's her birthday today, and, and there's a friend's anniversaries today. Uh, we, re- we reflect on that day uh, 21 years ago where our nation was attacked and just all of the things that have uh, snowballed from that day. We think of those lives that were lost then. We think of the many lives that were lo- lost sort of in the journey. And there are just many people still out there. There are uh, sons and daughters, moms and grandpas out there who have lost loved ones. And so we lift them up to you today on this anniversary. Uh, we're reminded, uh, Father, that uh, on days like this, that this world is just filled with a lot of darkness and there's a lot of sorrow and there's a lot of pain. And so we come to you and uh, we look to you as the light. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you for the work that Christ did on the cross. Uh, Father, we long for that day when we can be with you face to face, that uh, this this age, this season of, of sin will be done away with and we will just be with you in glory forever uh, with no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. And so, Father, we come to you now uh, just with our sin, with our pain, with our sorrow, and we ask that you would encourage us uh, from your word, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right. First John chapter 1, verse 5 <clears throat> reads, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is a light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for this passage. As we look at it, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what's being said in context, that there are some things that can be difficult to understand in this passage. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would lead us, that he would guide us, uh, that you would help us to rightly understand uh, what this passage is saying and how it applies to our lives. And, Father, we do thank you uh, for the forgiveness, for the cleansing that we have uh, through the blood of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So last week we, we, we entered into this, this passage. Um, we see from John, he announced to us that that he and the apostles during the day, they had seen Jesus, they had touched him, they heard from him. They were giving this firsthand account about who Jesus was. 
This wasn't just sort of hearsay. He was the last of the remaining apostles during Jesus' life. He was very close with Jesus. And he says, we heard, we saw, we touched, and now we proclaim to you uh, the word of life. And, and through him, there's ultimate joy, real joy, and that we can find true contentment uh, through him. This isn't, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that your life, that everything goes well, there's not difficulties, heartaches, and and just difficulty along the way. But in the midst of all of the hardships that this world has to offer in Christ, we can find true stability and peace and, and hope. And so now today, he's going to get into sort of the, you know, sort of like a number one problem that we face, and that's our sin problem, that as we enter in, we sort of have this barrier that we have all sinned, we fall short of the glory of God, uh, not just in our own right, but we're born into this nature of sin, and, and God is holy, and we are not, and so there's this divide. And so he begins with verse 5, which is really the sort of the, I would say, is like the key to this whole passage and into this book and probably to life. Um, he begins with this message. This is the message that we, the we is the apostles that he's speaking on behalf of, what we have heard from him and announced to you. We heard this firsthand from Jesus, and now we're announcing it to you or us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so here we have this major theme of, of the Bible, that God is light and that we are darkness, literally. And in this, this image of light, it means that God is pure. He's holy. He's righteous. He, he is goodness. He is perfection. He, through his light, reveals and exposes the darkness that is out there, the darkness that's in our heart, the darkness that's in the world. He is the standard by which we measure all things. It goes on to say, or he goes on to say, that there is no darkness within him. There is no impurity. There is no contamination. There is no wrong. There is no evil, and there is no error. God is never at fault. God is pure. And so these are huge themes that flow through the letter of 1 John, that flow through the book of, like, the whole Bible. God is holy, and we are not. He is light, and we are darkness. And so when we're confronted with him, when man encounters God, they're sort of they're gripped with sort of the reality of their position before God. We Just this week, if you're doing the Bible reading plan or you're reading through the Bible in a year, you would have hit Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 5, and the prophet Isaiah sort of encounters God, and he finds himself there in verse 5. And Isaiah writes, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of the hosts. So he encounters God, and his first reaction is to fall face down because he recognizes his impurities, and he has no business being in the presence of God. And to be in God's presence is to face destruction. Fast forwarding to the New Testament, there's this wonderful scene Peter, this, this great fisherman, he knows the water, he knows how to catch fish. He knows what he's doing. He'd been fishing all night unsuccessfully. Jesus sort of comes to him, tells him to do some stuff. He's like, okay, whatever, I'll do this stuff, but I, just because you're Jesus and I'm not. And I, but I, Jesus, I know fishing, you don't know fishing. He has this encounter where he knew that what happened 
it was because Jesus was God. There was no other explanation. And then Peter, in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when, Peter, when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So when he is, encounters deity, he recognizes, I cannot be in your presence. One of my favorite books of the Bible is Ephesians. And then there's probably one of the most offensive verses in the Bible, if you really look at it, or funny. Just, it's either offensive or funny, depending on how you look at it. I kind of find it funny. The first time I saw this, I was like, whoa, that is like pretty brutal. In Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 8, you read uh, about us. I mean, you could put your name there. And the, uh, and the Apostle Paul writes, For you were formerly darkness. I think a lot of times our mind inserts you were in darkness because we don't want to say that we were actually darkness. But what he writes is, you were formerly darkness. Apart from Christ, you were darkness. Today's passage, God is light. Apart from Christ, we are darkness. We are sinful. We are evil at our core. We are nothing like God. And he says, for you are formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And there's this command to then walk in the presence of the Lord's light. And that's the theme of today's passage. And it, it really, th- this, this whole passage today, the thing that I've had in my mind is, everybody here has gone bowling, right? Bowling can kind of be a trouble. There's a trouble because there's that big, gutter on either side of the lane. If that thing wasn't there, we'd be great. Uh, you throw it, ball goes to one side, so you try to compensate, and you throw it a different way, and then it goes into the other side. Uh, and for kids, they have those little rails that they put up, right? The little bumpers. Those are amazing, because then you can go bong, 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 strike. Perfect. I feel like there's bumpers in this, this, this passage. As, as we read it, there's sort of two dangers, and, and the apostles sort of like bonking off of both these, these, these bumpers, and as we hopscotch through the passage, you'll notice that the odd ones are sort of these, you claim this, well, this is the reality. And, and sort of like on one side of the coin is if you say that there's no issue with sin and there's no problem with sin, there's actually a really big problem. Uh, there's self-righteousness over here. You think, I mean, he goes as far as to say that you claim that there's no sin and that you have no sin. You're in real danger because you've never experienced a holy God that is light. Now, on the other side of the coin, you go to the other gutter and there's the, man, I'm a terrible sinner and I'm so condemned. There's nothing I can do to be right. And like, this is horrible. I'm just condemned. There's no hope for me. There's no way God would forgive me. And that's not where God wants us to be either. And then there's like where the porridge is just right, you know? <laughs> like, and so we're going to kind of like bonk back and forth, and it can get like, this section has so much beauty in it. There's these verses like 1 John 1, 9 that you probably or you could memorize to give you great hope. And if you just sort of take the, the odd verses where there's like hope and beauty, it's like, oh, it makes so much sense. But when you look at the other ones, it's like, oh, man, what is going on here? And I do think that at the heart of this, that song that we opened up with today, like I think where God wants us is where we're saying, Lord, I need you. I, I have no righteousness of my own. Um, I'm a terrible sinner, and I find myself that I, I just can't do this. If I try to do this and try to fake perfection, I, I, I can't. 
And when I try to do right, I still see within me that there's just so much sin within me, and I'm desperate. And the only thing I can do is to keep my eyes on you, and we're ending with communion today because that's what communion is all about, that we keep our eyes on the ball, we keep our eyes on the cross, because apart from the cross, we're nothing. We, have no, we bring nothing to the table with God. And in the midst of this, I think why it's difficult for us is because we're sort of, while this letter is intended for us, we are not the original audience. And so we don't, we're not living in this, this era where the Gnostics have sort of taken over and we're, we're infiltrating the church and there were actual problems within the church that John is addressing. And so we're coming in trying to figure out what was going on, but what he's actually doing is he's confronting these teachers that the teaching had bled into the church. And the church was going astray, so John is, is actually fixing a real problem that we can certainly draw principles from, but we're not actually living in the moment. And so the, the very first verse that we get to after God is light is verse 6. Within this verse, there's sort of three parts. There, there's a, a claim that they're making. John's going to contradict it, and then he's going to sort of give the conclusion of where they stand. And that sort of is the the theme that flows through these. So the claim, if we, now I have to stop here. So far up up to this point in this letter, when John has used the word we, he, he means himself and the apostles. And he's speaking on behalf of the apostles. Now, and for at least today's section, when he says we, He's coming to us and our side and putting himself with us as followers of Christ. And he's saying, if we, I am a, a, a sinner just like you. I am one who's encountered Christ just like you. I am one that apart from Christ, I stand condemned like you. I am one that has flesh and I struggle in my flesh like you. And so he says, if we, the apostle John and y'all, all of us, like all of us together, if we say that we have fellowship with him, the Father, this koinonia, this word that describes intimacy that was used in the context of marriage in the, like during this day, that if we have this intimacy with the Father, that we claim that we have intimacy with the Father, that's the claim that they're making, and the contradiction, yet walk in the darkness, so, so here's the problem. They're saying, I have fellowship with God. We have the truth. We are intimate with God. We have fellowship with the Father. But simultaneously, in practice, over and over and over again, their lives are marked with darkness. He says, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And so the problem here is sort of, I think hypocrisy at the deepest sense, saying one thing and then doing something that's totally different intentionally and saying there's no problem here, that there's, there's uh, incongruity between their proclamation and their lifestyle. You, you cannot have fellowship with the Father while walking in disobedience with darkness. And so he's confronting the teacher who says, there's no problem with anything that you do in this body because the Gnostics don't believe that there's any hope for this body, that this body is so filled with sin, 
is so marked for destruction that it's almost like fatalistic. So there's no part, there's no problem even trying because God's not going to hold us accountable for the things that happen in this, this body. So go ahead, live it up, do whatever you want, uh, any sort of way. There's not going to be accountability before God because in your spirit you're clean, but your body's totally separate and distinct, so just go for it. And that's how they sort of justified like, hey, I have deep fellowship with God, but on the body I'm living terribly. And so I think that the problem here is that they're not taking sin seriously at all. And he opens up this passage with the reality that God is light, he is holy, he is just, he is perfect in every sort of way, and you cannot commingle dark with lightness. And so he's saying, if you're saying that you have fellowship with God, but you're walking in the darkness, you're lying. You're lying to everybody. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to God. You're not practicing the truth. There's that old saying, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Like our lives matter. Like how we live our lives in the Bible, there, there is accountability for how we, like our lives and how we live them out, it matters to God. And we will be held accountable. And so this is like, now I'm not infringing on grace, but the fruit of the Spirit will manifest itself in your life if you're a child of God. When I, when I look at this, to think of the individuals who they proclaimed one thing, they had knowledge, sound doctrine, and then there's exposure to the truth, uh, whether it's in their life or in their death, something comes out that's just like, whoa. Like in this last year, there was a huge name, a guy I super respected. I, like, I, I had said multiple times, I think he's one of the brightest minds within Christianity, and then in his death, totally like he was exposed for super heinous sexual sins. And I've since thrown away a bunch of his books. I'm like, I, like his doctrine, what he says is, is, is top tier. Like, but because his life doesn't align with his product, I can't take what this guy's saying anymore. And so here there's this sort of this confrontation by the Apostle John. Your lives matter. So if you're reading this and you're feeling really convicted, maybe even frustrated, because like I get a little frustrated because it's like if we're honest with ourselves, we know that at our like at our core we are not perfect. We are sinful. There's and now this the first verse is dealing with like openly practicing, not caring, not condemning. This isn't. This, this isn't at all um, talking about the, the Christian who stumbles because we stumble in sin every day. The more we grow closer to Christ, the, the, uh, you know, like I heard one guy say that our little sins become big sins because we get a better grasp of the holiness of God. But then we go to verse 7, the encouraging verse. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he's saying, okay, so if you walk in the light, i got to go verse, five, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we'd lie and do not practice the truth. 
So now he flips the switch and says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in the light as he himself is a light, we have fellowship with one another. And so he's saying that now the, now the distinction, we're walking in the light. Because we're walking in the light, something changes. Now, every single commentator, this whole one another, it's like super confused. Like this is one of those, uh, like what do we do with this? Who's the one another? If you read like virtually every commentator, what they say is if you walk in the light as he himself is in the light, that we, like all of us, will suddenly have fellowship with one another. I, I could see that. Like, There's one commentary, the Bible knowledge commentary, that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. It flips the switch, and it says, this isn't talking about us. The, the context is about fellowship with the Father, because that's the, that's the immediate context that we're talking about. Um, they go on to say, it is strange that many commentators have understood the expression with one another as a re- reference to fellowship with other Christians. But this is not what the author is discussing here. The Greek pronoun for one another is some word that may refer to two parties, God and the Christian, named in the first part of the statement. John's point is that if Christians live in light where God is, then there is a mutual relationship between himself and them. That is, that they have fellowship with him, and he has fellowship with them. The light itself is the fundamental reality which they share. Thus, true communion with God is living in the sphere where one's experience is illuminated by the truth of what God is. It is to live open to his revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. As John will soon state, this entails the believers acknowledging whatever the light reveals is wrong in their lives. It is significant that John talked of walking in the light rather than according to the light. To walk according to the light would require sinless perfection and would make fellowship with God impossible for sinless humans. To walk in it, however, suggests instead of openness and responsiveness to the light, John did not think of Christians as sinless, even though they are walking in the light. Now, I'm sure that I just created like a huge ball of twine in your brains, and I'm sorry about that. There's deep stuff here, and I can't just like skim it over. Fellowship, super critical word. If you have your Bibles before you and you look down to verse 3, sort of following from last week, between last week and this word, this, this word fellowship appears four times. And I kind of see why the commentators are sort of like at odds with one another over how to handle this. Like who's the fellowship with? So verse three, we have seen and we have heard and we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. So like they're talking about having fellowship with the apostles, that we have fellowship with one another, certainly within the Christian life. As we encounter Christ, we, there is a kinship, a brotherhood, a closeness amongst Christians that are united in Christ that is hard to put words to. And then he goes on to say, and indeed our fellowship, the second time the word is used, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Skipping down to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, the him is the Father. 
or with God, that God is light, is the immediate context. If we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And, and, and I'm more inclined to think that, that what, what the case in point here is saying is the issue here is that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness. Well, the Bible tells us that we're darkness. And if God is light and we're darkness, we, we can't have this, this koinonia. And so John's sort of pointing out that problem. If you say that you're, you're, you're walking in the light, yet your life is marked in the darkness, you have no fellowship with the Father. You're deceiving yourself. But if you walk in the light, so if you go into the light and you allow the light to like expose the cockroaches of your heart and don't let the little cockroaches run around. You grab the little buggers and you say, no, 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 we're going to deal with this. This is sin in my heart. God is exposing it. I need to work out these kinks. And then as we do that, we still have the little cockroaches in our hearts. Sorry for the, that's the pictures that just came to my mind. And, uh, and light and darkness, cockroaches are the most natural thing to kind of surface in my thinking. And as we put ourselves into the light, we subject ourselves to the light it doesn't necessarily mean that we're clean, but we're subjecting ourselves to the Father who is cleansing us and is and forming us into his image and his likeness. And as we do this, I think we have relationship with him, that there's fellowship with him, that we're, we're connected with him. How? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He's speaking to believers. And so these are people who have surrendered their lives to Christ, who have acknowledged that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross was done for them. And so as Christians, you're, you're just a saved sinner. You're not sinless now that Christ, you're a saved sinner, and we put ourselves under the light. And as we do this, it connects our fellowship, our relationship with the Father. And consequently, as we have fellowship with him, we're certainly going to have fellowship with one another. If you're in conflict with people all around you, within the church, without the church, I would go as far to suggest to you that you might not have fellowship with the Father because God desires us to be at peace with all men. All right, verse 7. This is what we've seen. The point between verses 6 and 7. They sort of go hand in hand. If you have a pattern of walking in the darkness you're not in fellowship with the Father. It's impossible. But if you have a life that is patterned after putting yourself into the light and allowing the light to expose things, then you can have fellowship with the Father, and this is made possible through the work of the cross that Jesus has cleansed and purified you. So now we're going back over to the other side of the bowling lane, and we're going to look at the, an, another problem. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin... Like, I don't know any, like, apparently these people exist out there. I've only read their writings, and it seems crazy to me. I've never actually met somebody that could look me in the face and say that they have no sin. Like, I, I haven't encountered that person, but they do exist out there. And so this is a claim. If you say that you have no sin, that you have so progressed in the Christian life that you're now just walking in the Spirit 100% of the day, your brain is so in tune with God that you've just, like, Maybe you're, you're blind and you can't hear, like, like you're so like, but you still have your heart and your thoughts and your like, no matter how I go, like, I recognize that I'm not going to attain sinlessness in this life. 
But, he, but there were some during this day who said that they had progressed in the Christian life following the Gnostics' teaching, this enlightenment that they had, that they had a, a, a reached the place where there was no sin in their lives. And he says, you're just deceiving yourself. <laughs> like, I'd start with pride. Like, you probably have a pride issue. Let's go with that one. And the truth is n- not in you. Because the, the Bible makes it clear that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are saved sinners. Coming to Christ and receiving forgiveness doesn't suddenly take out your sin nature. It doesn't suddenly uh, remove the flesh within you. Now you have the spirit and your flesh, these two roommates that are at odds with each other within you. And you find yourself sort of tormented between the two. So if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I just sort of imagine the Apostle John writing, and he's like, okay, I know the poor people, like all of us reading this. Okay, if you say that you're in the light, or if you say that you have fellowship with God, but you're over here in a lifestyle of sin, you're in trouble. So then he says, if you walk in the light, then you have the blood of Christ. Okay, good. I'm good. I'm in the middle. I'm going down. It looks like it's going to be a strike. But then if we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. And it's like, well, like, I'm kind of like, well, what? I know there's sin. So am I in the darkness or am I in the light or how do I handle this? And so then he transfers over to verse nine, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. This is, this is one of those Verses, it's like ointment to our souls. And he's saying, that this, so here's a claim. Like if, if we confess our sins, so when we sin, when we become aware of our sin, we humble ourselves before God and we acknowledge it, say, Lord, I am struggling in this area. Or maybe it's a pattern of sin. Like, Lord, I continue to fail in this point. And I think in this moment when we're feeling broken, I do think that this is where Satan tries to like come at us and say, God will never forgive you. How many times are you going to screw this one thing up? You're, you're, you're meaningless. He's so frustrated with you. He forgave you about this yesterday and three days ago. This, you've gone too far now. And so it's very easy for us with our sin, these sins that we struggle with over and over and over again, even if they're not necessarily coming out, but they're in you and you've had the restraint. He says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first off, I love that the, this is the Apostle John. This, this is the young whippersnapper who is like super bosom buddies with Jesus throughout his life. On the cross, Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I need you to take care of my mom. She's now your mom. Take care of her. Tradition holds that he took care of Mary till she passed away. Uh, this, this is a guy who God used in, in tremendous ways to, to, to write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the letter of Re- Revelation. And here he is with us, acknowledging that he has sin also. And if we confess our sins, so when he confesses his sin, like when we confess our sins, we can point to the truth and the reality and and the stability that it's not about us, it's about God. 
and his faithfulness and his ability to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness that we struggle with. Like, I don't know about you, but this, this verse just brings me so much hope. Because if you are a believer in Christ, and I think that this is who this verse is aimed at, there's hope for us that when we, when we, when we stumble, when we sin, when we miss the, the mark, like we will do, like whatever it is, your sin today might not look like the sin that you struggled with 20 or 40 years ago, but you have a depraved nature. And it will manifest itself, however, and we're told that when that happens and the Spirit of God within us convicts us of our sin, believe he forces us to our knees and we say, Lord, I did it again. I confess this sin to you. I ask you for help. And we're told that God is faithful. Now, if you're not a believer and you haven't responded to the gospel, we're told in Ephesians 1.13 that after hearing the gospel that Jesus died, he was buried for three days, he rose from the dead. We're told that this is the gospel, that he did it for you according to the scriptures, that he made payment for your sins. And we're told in that verse that once you believed, you were sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. So if you haven't believed, the, the, the entry place into this fellowship with the Father is belief. It's as simple as that. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about praying a prayer. As contrary as that sounds, the Bible and the New Testament makes it very clear. You hear the gospel, the light bulb goes in your head, you say, yes, I believe, in your mind. Like, at that moment, the Spirit of God seals you until the day of redemption. It sounds too easy, doesn't it? But that's grace. That's how God works. And then you're, you're moved from the body of Adam into the body of Christ. And there in the body of Christ, we now positionally are with God. And we, as Christians... As we live our lives, we are in Adam, and we're going to struggle with sin. And as we struggle with sin, the, the, the best illustration I can, I can come up with is when you get in a fight with your spouse. When you get in a fight with your spouse, it doesn't mean you're, like, divorced. It, 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 it doesn't mean that you're not married. You're married. Uh, but that kiss goodnight might not really come. Or, you know, when Anne and I first got married, for the first couple of years, we, like, we were like slackers at this point. But for the first couple of years of our marriage, we committed to praying for our, our missionary friend who was serving in the Middle East. And do you think that we really wanted to like pray for the missionary in the Middle East when we were like having a little spat because I did something wrong? Like, I'm just taking full ownership about it. Like, like 99% of the time, it's my, my fault. I'll, I'll accept that. And so this is kind of the, the it, like, so in Christ, you're forgiven. You're positionally, you're in Christ. But as you sin, your relationship with God is damaged. And what this verse is telling us is as you say sorry and seek God for help, he is faithful to forgive you, to cleanse you, to restore that relationship. It's It's beautiful. Um, I, I have to put a warning on this. This verse is not a license to sin. Early in my Christian life, I heard somebody say, oh, I'm going to go out drinking and partying, but I'll just first John 1, 9 it in the morning. You guys see the problem with that? That's not what this verse, th- th- is Romans 6, 1. 
we don't continue to sin so that grace may abound. The more we sin, the better we make look God, right? This, that's not what this is saying. Sin grieves God, and we as his followers, his grief should be our grief. When we stumble, when we fall, it should break our hearts. Like we should get frustrated with ourselves. And so this verse isn't this like blessing from God to go do crazy stuff. Like we can't live that sinless life in these bodies, but we can long for it. When we fall short, it should grieve us as it grieves him. And this is a very different thing from hypocrisy. So often the world will say, oh, the Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And, and I don't always, like certainly there, certainly there are hypocrites within Christianity. Those that, that claim to be one thing and then are just doing something that's totally wrong and they know it and they don't care about it and they're living lives that are duplicit. So often... Within Christianity, what it is, is I want to be like him. But there's this thing within me that constantly is throwing me off course. There's sin within me. The thing I want to do, I don't end up doing. The thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I do. That's not hypocrisy. That's, that's, that's like growing in the Christian life. This is like aligning ourselves, but recognizing in this body, we're always going to fall short. We might become more like Christ in this body, but we're never going to reach perfection until the day that we stand before him face to face. All right. Verse 10. We'll kind of move along here. So if we, this sort of continues. If we say that we have not sinned, this is going from the, the last one. The distinction here is the last one is like that you've progressed enough in the Christian life that you're no longer sinning, and that you've attained sort of sinless perfection. This one's kind of going even further. You're kind of arguing against the first claim. I've never even sinned. Like, I was born holy. Um, And he's saying, if, if you claim that you've never sinned, that you've never, ever, ever dealt with this, uh, you're, you're making God a liar. Whenever I read this, I think of this. So there's a friend of ours. He's a missionary down in, like, South America. Um, or he was. He's in San Diego now. But he tells a story. They were in Uruguay or Paraguay or one of those places down there. And there's a group of guys in a Jeep. I know I've told the story before. For those of you who are like, oh, Gunnar, you've told this one before. They're in this Jeep, four young men. And one of the drive, one of the guys, not the driver, is like, guys, how do you deal like with the temptation of all these women that are topless. Like the women in South America, apparently in the jungles, they're not wearing tops. And he's like, I'm struggling with like temptation when I, like these people that we're trying to reach for Christ, I'm like having these thoughts that I shouldn't be having. Like, how do you guys cope with this? And the driver made a big, man, I guess I'm more Christian than you guys because I don't, I just see them as people whom for Christ died and I don't, there, I don't see them that way. And as he's saying this, I guess they're about to cross a bridge and the bridge was composed of a tree that had been split in half going over this thing. So they're driving the Jeep over the bridge. The driver made this big case about how he doesn't struggle this way. Down in the river, there's a young lady doing her laundry with no top on. Do you think the Jeep made it across the bridge? No, it kind of made it over towards the young lady because the driver is like staring at the young lady. 
Like if you claim that you've never sinned, that you don't, like you're just making God a liar because God says we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And so between the, the bumpers, like so if we're just going to do verses 5 through 10, it sort of leaves you with like bad news, good news, bad news, good news, bad news. And I don't want to just stop on the bad news because there's another bumper, but whoever put the different chapter breakings didn't break there where I think he should have break. So if we go into chapter 2, verse 1, we want to end on the, like, the good news. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, I just, I hear the voice of a sweet old man, almost like a grandfather, the Apostle John, who's well into his 90s. I don't know, well into the 90s. It's, it's in the 90s. It's many, many years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's the only remaining apostle, and now he looks to the church, and he says, my little children. He's like, I love you guys. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And, and, I, and what he's saying is, like, you don't have to be in bondage to sin, a lifestyle of sin. This isn't saying that you'll never sin, that you'll be sin-free, but you don't have to be in bondage. And these are two totally different things, that, that we can be freed from the bondage of sin. We can yield our lives to the Spirit so we're we're sensitive to his voice. We're sensitive to his conviction. When we get off course, he kind of zaps us. And then we're quick to confess. And he says, if anyone sins, because when you sin, like if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we're trying to live our lives. We're trying to walk with God. We're trying to be righteous. We're trying to be holy. We're, we're faced daily with the sinful nature within us, and it can break our hearts. It should break our hearts. It should, we should be sensitive to the sorrow that we're causing God in our falling short. We will do this. We will grieve the Father. And then John says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, this paracletus. This is the helper. This is the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit at times. It's the word where we get attorney from. And so this 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 image sort of pulling from a revelation where there's also the Bible tells us that there's this accuser in heaven standing before God day and night accusing us of our sins. But there's this attorney, this courtroom scene that's playing out sort of, it seems like almost on a 24-7 basis. Accuser. I got this guy, Gunner God. He, uh, he's struggling with anger and frustration again. You've been dealing with this for a long time in his life. You know, three strikes and you're out. He's on strike number like 7,202. So I think we should condemn him now. But then we have an advocate, Jesus. The best representation that money can't buy. He stands there and he says, this 7,200, I have no idea what number I just spit out. But when that nail was being driven into my hand, I paid for that one too. Past, present, future. I took on all of his sin. I've paid it in full. It's huge. And he himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation. This is a huge word. 
both in saying it and understanding it, it basically means to be satisfied. This is the picture of the judge in the courtroom. You have the accuser making the accusations, all of the things, throw the books at him, do all the stuff. You have the advocate saying, I paid for it. I took on the, the punishment that was due him. And the judge going, I'm satisfied with that. Propitiation means satisfied. It's that God's wrath is satisfied. The, the, the punishment that was due us in the cross, the wrath was absorbed in full, not in part like the old hymn, in full. The Father is satisfied with how Jesus handled the sin problem that we have. And in him, we're able to approach the light and have not just be in the light, but to have this relationship with the Father that is intimate. And he goes on to say, and not for ours only, ours only, the apostles, those who are in the church, this uh, limited atonement, you could say, and I'm not trying to like bash my brothers who are in the more reformed Calvinistic position that, that really holds to like a limited atonement, but I, I, I come to these issues and I'm like, we can do some dance to try to make it say something that it doesn't say, but it says, but, not, but also for the sins of the whole world, like for humanity. So people, when they stand before God in their death, they're going to say, what did you do with Jesus? And you're either going to be one in the camp of rejection or the camp that surrendered and believed. The sin issue was dealt for, like Jesus died for the sins of the world. And this is huge. Okay, what do we do with this passage? Well, obviously communion. You can start unwrapping your, uh, your little cup here. Um, as I've, this like 1 John 1, 9 is so beautiful, but when you look at the passage in context, it's so very difficult. Like, it's so very difficult. Um, and like starting last Sunday night, kind of just, I've been just sort of immersed in this, trying to go like, God, what, like, what do we do with this? And there's been sort of two other verses or, or passages, I should say, before you think I'm just going to read one verse, that... Uh, that have been standing out to me, like, what does God desire from us in this passage? And so one of these passages is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. You know, he just, he just written in Romans chapter 6, like, we don't go on sinning so that God's grace may abound, but in chapter 7, he, he gets real personal. And in the Greek, it's present active indicative. Some will, will do cartwheels to say, oh, Paul's talking about his previous life. No, 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 no. The Greek is like, as he's writing, he's struggling with this very thing. And in Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 24, Paul writes, I find then the principle that evil is present within me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, a wretched man that I am, who will set me free from 
the body of this death. So here's Paul. He says, I know Jesus. When I look at the law, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that the Bible says. I want this in my life, 100%. I am not arguing what God says. I am behind everything that God says. I want that. But when I look at my body, it's like waging this war. And everything that I want to do, I'm not doing. And the things that I say you shouldn't do, those are the things that I'm doing. And what am I going to do with this body? Like, I'm, like I, I have these two roommates that hate themselves within me. What am I going to do? Then he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh of the law of sin. So he recognizes this tension and he realizes that the only hope that he has is in Jesus. Jesus in Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 tells this parable that I think is so beautiful that I also think is it's like at the heart of what this passage is dealing with. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, their own righteousness. They're on the other side. I've not sinned. I don't have sin. I'm walking blamelessly before God. And he told this parable to some people who trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector who was hated. Tax, I mean, I've come to learn in recent weeks that we still have some contempt for taxmen. When the government says they're going to hire like another 85,000, I haven't seen people going, that's exactly what we need. That's what we want. Like, I haven't seen a lot of joy over this. So you have a religious guy and a taxman, very different in the eyes of the public. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector, The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. And then Jesus shifts over to the tax collector who's standing sort of at the distance. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says about this man, I tell you, this man went to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We come into communion faced with verse 5 that God is light and in him there is no darkness. We are are sinful. And there's a divide between God and us that we cannot rectify on our own. But we hold these little communion cups with, with the little wafer and the juice. The wafer represents the, the, the blood or the body of Christ, excuse me, that was broken for us, that the wrath of God was placed on him and that he satisfied the wrath of God, the The juice is symbolic of the blood. This new covenant that we have, this new relationship, this once and for all, Jesus died once on the cross and it was sufficient, the author of Hebrews says. We can't, but Jesus did. We started today with this song, God, how I need you. 
And as we take communion today, that should be the prayer of our hearts because we recognize, Lord, I can't do that. I cannot, I can't make, I can't make the standard. I continually fall short. Lord, I need you. Father, I confess my sin. This is an element of communion that we confess. There's an, there's an element of remembering what Jesus did. There's a call for us also to, to be reminded that as often as we take the Lord's Supper, that we're to proclaim his death to this world that needs him. So let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the great lofty truths that are in this passage today. We thank you. Lord, there's some heavy stuff. Uh, Lord, we recognize that uh, in our own lives that there are inconsistencies. Paul wrote about it so powerfully that the desire of our heart is to walk with you in light. The desire of our heart is to fulfill all that you've commanded us to fulfill. We desire that. We long for that. We want that in our, in our lives, in our world. And yet as we wake up and face the day, we're, we're, we're met with challenges within our hearts, our minds, our thoughts. Uh, if not alone, then it's not too long before we encounter other humans that sort of draw out our sinful nature. Our bodies begin to hurt and break down, and it makes us irritable and cranky. And, and so, Lord, it just it's not that hard to expose the sinful desires within our heart. And so, Lord, I'm not going to stand here and try to claim that I have anything to bring to you that's of any value. Father, I thank you that Jesus loved me and loves all of us to the extent that he would go through this, this great, uh, this great uh, trip to earth to live the perfect life, to, to be an example for us, to live as we should live, uh, to love as we should love, to forgive as we should forgive. And so we hold these elements in our hand to remind us of that, that fateful day when Jesus was arrested he was betrayed with a kiss. He was beaten. He was scourged ruthlessly over like a you know, 12-hour window or whatever it was. And that he ultimately was nailed to that cross to die a slow, painful death. While I was yet a sinner, he died for me. And this is an overwhelming thought, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to live this life that you've called us to live. We thank you for the forgiveness. We thank you for the redemption that is found in Christ. We pray, Father, that as we go about our days, that you would help us, Lord, to hear the voice of the Spirit who convicts us of our sin. He doesn't condemn us of our sin. He convicts us. And so as we face that conviction, Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond quickly that we would be quick to confess, to apologize to you, that we would be quick to confess and to apologize uh, those that uh, were the recipients of our sin, if there were. And Father, just help us uh, to be like you day by day. We thank you that you are faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us, to renew us. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.